And I invite you now to turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we will be looking at verse 8 this evening. Paul's second letter to Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. And so I will read this one verse for us, but before I do, I remind you as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. So let us attend to it as such and receive it from him with joyful hearts. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Beloved of God, our Savior once told us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So let's ask him now to feed us from his word as his sheep. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we confess that far too often our souls cling to the dust, to the things of this world. And so we pray for the sake of Jesus, your Son, our Lord and Savior, that you would give us life according to your word. May you send during this time your spirit to make us understand the way of your precepts that we might meditate on your wondrous works and enlarge our hearts, O Lord, that we might run in the way of your commandments and cling to your testimonies. And we pray that you would give us a glimpse this evening of the glories of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is our blessed hope, and we have loved his appearing. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we jump back into 2 Timothy chapter 1 after taking a break last week for our Christmas Eve service. And I hope you remember the context that Mikey reminded us, laid out for us so clearly two weeks ago of the context in which Paul is writing this second letter now to Timothy. Hopefully you remember in his first letter to Timothy, there was an urgency, an urgency for Timothy to be faithful, to continue to lead the church, exercise oversight in the church the way that Christ had commanded him to. And now here we see that urgency increased in this second letter from Paul to Timothy. And we know why that urgency is increased. It's increased because Paul is well aware of the fact that his life is coming to a close. He's imprisoned for a second time. He's imprisoned in Rome. And he knows he's not going to make it out. This is going to be the end for him. And so he's thinking about his young protege, Timothy, thinking, okay, I received the baton from Christ. Paul saying that. The apostles did. And now we're passing this baton on to others like Timothy, who are then to take that baton and pass it on to other faithful men, who are then to pass it on to other faithful men, and so on and so forth. And so as the chapter of Paul's life is coming to a close, he understands how important it is that he impresses upon Timothy. Timothy, the stakes are high. <laughs> And I'm passing this gospel proclamation, this calling on to you. And so you need to be diligent in what you're doing. And so we see this urgency almost reach a fever pitch. And in this context, as Paul is writing to Timothy, what we see tonight in this one verse is two specific commands 
that Paul gives to Timothy, two commands that he is to carry out by God's grace as he is conducting ministry wherever Christ is going to call him. And those two commands are two commands that we need to hear and be reminded of tonight, brothers and sisters, because as the church of the living God, we're also given these commands in sacred scripture. And so the first command that Paul gives to Timothy in the first half of verse 8 is he tells him, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not give in to that temptation to be ashamed of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he actually adds on to that, or of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of gospel ministers, Timothy. But that's not the only command he gives him. That's the negative command. Do not do this. Do not be ashamed. Then on the other hand, in the second half of verse 8, he positively tells Timothy, here's what I do want you to do. Don't be ashamed, but instead share in suffering for the gospel. And so here we have these two commands. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. There it is negatively. Instead, do this. Be prepared to share in suffering for the gospel as God graciously strengthens you and upholds you to that end. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come to this text, understand we're being commanded to do this. And so we should have every expectation that God is going to strengthen us by his spirit to do that which he has commanded us to do. Because he doesn't just command it, he then gives it to us. Both in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in strengthening us then to obey him. So let's approach these commands with every confidence that he has made provision and will make provision for us to walk faithfully in these ways. So let's look first then at the first half of verse 8 where Paul commands Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel. Look at verse 8 with me again. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So notice how Paul starts this whole thought out. He says, therefore. Now, I'm sure every single person in this room has heard this before. Anytime you see the word therefore, you're to ask yourself, what is it therefore? And the therefore is there to take us back to verse 7, where Paul tells Timothy, listen, you have received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit that he's given is not a spirit of fear. The Holy Spirit is a spirit that brings power and love and self-control. Don't you understand, Timothy, we've received the promised Holy Spirit who was promised to be given under the old covenant, and now that the new covenant has come with the Messiah, he sends the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us for ministry, and we're reconciled to God. And so therefore, since we have that spirit, he says, do not be ashamed. Now, I want to point out something here in defense of Timothy. Lest we think that Paul is accusing Timothy of actually having committed this sin of being ashamed of the gospel, you're going to have to take my word for this unless the handful of you who read Greek in this room, but the construction of the Greek lets us know that that's not what Paul is doing. Paul's not telling Timothy, you have committed this sin of being ashamed of the gospel. No, he's saying, I want you to be aware that this is going to be a temptation for you. Surely it was a temptation for Paul. And Paul says, I know it's going to be a temptation for you, Timothy, and so I do not want you to give in to it. 
You need to be aware that you'll be tempted to this because of the fear of man, because of the fear of what they can do to you. And so in the face of that, you are to not be ashamed because of the spirit that dwells within us. And so he's telling Timothy, this is what he's to do. Now, here's the question we need to ask. Okay, so what is he not to be ashamed of? What is he not to be ashamed of? Well, first of all, we see in verse 8, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. All right, so what is Paul talking about here? What's the testimony about our Lord? He's talking about the gospel. The testimony that the Lord Jesus Christ has given about himself, that he is the Son of God who took on flesh for us and our salvation, and that in his work, he accomplished just that, and fulfilling all of the Old Testament promises. Christ gives that testimony. He then passes that on to the apostles, and now the apostles are passing that on to others. And Paul says, Timothy, I do not want you to be ashamed of this gospel that we have received. The good news that the Son of God has taken on flesh, he's fulfilled all righteousness, all the ways that we've failed to obey the law of God, he's fulfilled that perfectly in our place so that we're counted righteous in him. And then he died on the cross, paying the full penalty for our sins so there's none left. He then rose from the dead and appeared to many and then ascended to the right hand of the Father offering himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for all the sins of the elect and then interceding as our great high priest. So he's praying for the church even now. Paul is saying, Timothy, do not be ashamed of that gospel. And we'll talk a little bit later about why we're often tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. But it's enough for us to know that's the first reality that Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of. The second reality is he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. So he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel, and don't be ashamed of me as a gospel minister. And this is a little bit of an aside, but notice how Paul describes himself here. He says, nor of me, his prisoner. Well, whose prisoner? Not Caesar's, ultimately. Not Nero's prisoner, ultimately. Paul says, I am a prisoner of and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why am I here, Timothy? Don't be ashamed. Don't be discouraged. It's not because Nero's put me here ultimately. It's because Christ has called me to serve here in this way. And second of all, don't be ashamed because I haven't done anything wrong to be put in prison. I've stood for the gospel. I've been wrongly accused. That's why I'm here. Because I'm bearing testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's as if Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed, Timothy. So you ought not to be ashamed either. And yet here's the sad reality. That's not how others were seeing Paul's imprisonment. We know that because we can just flip one page over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 17. And we see that the likes of Hymenaeus and Philetus end up abandoning Paul. They're ashamed of Paul. They're ashamed of the gospel, and so they abandon Paul. Now, why do they do that? Well, if we look at verse 18, we see that Hymenaeus and Philetus, this is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, he says that they have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, 
They are upsetting the faith of some. So what's this false doctrine that Hymenaeus and Philetus are teaching? They're teaching this higher, victorious Christian life. They're saying, listen, there's this spiritual resurrection that's taken place for all true believers. Okay, we can say that so far. But what they mean by that is something very different than what we mean by that. Yes, we believe that believers are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. So there is a spiritual resurrection that happens. But they were over-realizing that spiritual life, saying that means that you're not going to have any suffering. You're going to have a life where you have health and you have wealth. You have all of these things. So they have an over-realized eschatology. And they're looking at Paul and his suffering, and they're saying, he's not really a Christian. If he was, he wouldn't be experiencing this kind of suffering. He would be above it. He would be living the victorious Christian life. And so ashamed of Paul and ashamed of the gospel, they turn away from both Paul and the gospel. And Paul is telling Timothy to not give in to the temptation to do the same. And here's the thing. Many had already given into this. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Everyone's turning away from him. And then in the closing of the letter as well, in chapter 4, you see that, that all sorts of folks have abandoned him again. And so Paul's saying, Timothy, don't you do what they have done. Don't you abandon the gospel. Don't you abandon me. Because by abandoning faithful gospel ministers who are faithfully standing, you are also abandoning the gospel for which they stand. And yet this is a real temptation, isn't it? I think the temptation for us is to think, I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to be ashamed of faithful gospel ministers. So this doesn't really apply to me. And yet, brothers and sisters, the sad reality is if we look at history, we can see at the individual and institutional level again and again, the church, Christian schools, and individual Christians over and over again because of whatever shame they think is going to be brought upon them because of the gospel and because of their standing with faithful gospel ministers, they abandon it. We don't even have to look at history. We can just look at examples in our own lives, can't we? I'm sure we all have known people that made a profession of faith. They seemed to be growing so much. They were like the seed in the parable of the sower that is cast into the shallow ground. And so there's this burst of life. And it seems, man, they're the real deal. They're on fire for God, right? That's what evangelicals would say. And so there's this flurry of activity, and yet it dies out. Why? Because there's no actual root. They're not actually connected to the Savior. They're not actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They're not actually reconciled to God. And so they fall away. And oftentimes we see them do this because, well, I mean, what does Jesus say in the parable of the sower? It's the cares of this world and sufferings and persecutions. When they come, they prove that there's no root. And so we've seen this in people's lives, haven't we? It's devastating. We're seeing it in our own church. This very thing happening is we had to have excommunication, church discipline happen this morning. And it's terribly terribly sad to see but oftentimes what's happening in these cases is these people care more about what the world thinks and the world's judgments upon them and upon the church than they do about what God has spoken and said we need to hold fast to in his word 
And so as a result, they end up seeking the approval of those who are here today and gone tomorrow rather than the approval of the one who was and is and is to come. That's a foolish exchange, brothers and sisters. They forget what Jesus says, that if we deny him before men, guess what he does? He denies us before his Father who is in heaven. That should make us tremble. And we also see this at the institutional level, don't we? You can probably think of all sorts of examples of this. But when institutions that once stood firmly for the gospel, then the world begins to press them on that. Do you really believe that? Do you understand what you're saying by saying that you believe that? And so they become ashamed and they pull back more and more and more. Perhaps they crave intellectual respectability. Maybe they're a Christian university and the world is telling them, man, that's archaic way of thinking. You're going to hurt people. Maybe that worked back then, but not anymore. Get with the program. And so these institutions, these churches, these Christian universities, They begin to cave, not realizing, as James says, that to be friends with the world is to be at enmity with God. And so so because they're ashamed, because they fear the world, they end up abandoning the gospel out of shame. Shame is such an interesting human experience, isn't it? Because sometimes we'll experience shame for something that we shouldn't experience shame for, right? That's what Paul is warning Timothy about here. And then we have, in our culture, and this has always been the case, you have people who, rather than being ashamed of things they ought to be ashamed of, are actually proud about it. They take pride in that. They want to shove it in your face, and you're like, that's shameful. Knock it off. Not just before me, but before God. And so, this is an interesting experience, and Paul is saying, I don't want you to wrongly be ashamed, Timothy, of the gospel, because you should Understand that the gospel is honorable. It's something that you should proudly proclaim to all. And yet many fall away. And so, brothers and sisters, this is a warning that we need to hear. And we need to hear this command of Paul to not be ashamed of the gospel. Because, again, the world hears the gospel and they do think it's shameful, don't they? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, that preaching Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It's scandalous to them. It's foolishness. It's folly. And every people group in their fallen state has that response. It might be nuanced differently, but their natural response in their fallen state is to reject the gospel, to hate it, to despise it, to see it as shameful. And the point is that since the world hates the gospel, and we are often tempted to care about what the world thinks, the people that we can see rather than the God that we can't, we then do what? We're tempted to cave. We're tempted to be ashamed ourselves. And so we need to be on guard against this. And we need to pray that God will keep us, that he will cause us by his spirit to hold fast to the gospel. Because even though the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so this message of good news is to be everything to us. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is God graciously, lovingly, mercifully giving himself to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we don't have him, what do we have? Ultimately, we have nothing. So, 
we need to hear this command. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. And then secondly, we need to be reminded, this is by way of application, to not be ashamed of your pastors. I mean, isn't that what Paul is telling Timothy here? Don't be ashamed of me as I faithfully stand for Christ and his gospel because the temptation's going to be there. And it has always been there. You're going to be pressed by people that you know at work. Maybe this happened to you over the holidays, your unbelieving family members tempting you. Like, what are they teaching? Are they crazy? Do you believe that as well? And so the temptation is real. For us to be ashamed of the gospel, to be ashamed of our gospel ministers as they faithfully stand. And we need to understand that we ought not to be ashamed. To stand with them. But instead to pray for them. Pray that they would continue to faithfully stand against the onslaught that is brought against them. And to not give in to the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. Now, I have one more point of application on this first point before we get to the second, because I imagine this is a question that will come up. What if you have been ashamed of the gospel? What if you have been ashamed of your gospel ministers? What if you haven't taken the stand that you should, and so you've sinned in this way? I think all of us can think of at least one time in our lives when we've done this. Well, the answer is to do what? It's to to repent of our sins. It's to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was never ashamed of himself. He is the gospel. He is God's grace to us. And then look to him and know that he is our righteousness. And know that he is willing to restore us. Right? I mean, think of Peter. Right? What does Peter do? In the same chapter in Luke 22, he with one breath tells the Lord, I'm willing to go to prison and to die with you. And then in the next, he's saying, I don't even know who he is. Not once, not twice, but three times. Why? Because he was ashamed. He was afraid of the suffering and persecution that would come upon him. And yet Christ pursues him and restores him. And the Lord will do the same with us as well, so that we can then, even as Peter did, stand faithfully, unashamedly for Christ and for his gospel. Okay, having said that, that's the first command, and don't worry, the second one goes more quickly. The second command that we're given here, negatively we're told to not be ashamed of the gospel, now positively we're commanded to share in suffering for the gospel, to actually share in this suffering. So look at verse 8 with me again. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So what's Paul saying? He's saying you need to be willing, Timothy, not to run from suffering when that's what's required in order to faithfully stand for the gospel. He's not saying go out of your way to find suffering. He's saying when it's necessary, you are to share in that. And it will be necessary in gospel ministry. And this isn't a new concept, right? I mean, this is a concept that shows up as soon as the fall happens, right? Because what's part of the curse? There's going to be enmity now between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between believers and unbelievers. And so we see that theme all throughout the Old Testament. And then when Jesus comes, what does he say? He says, listen, the trajectory of your life in this earth is going to be the same as mine. First is going to come the cross, first the humiliation, first the suffering, then the crown, then the glory. 
but your life is going to follow the same trajectory that mine has. And why is that? Well, Jesus tells us in John 15, 20, because a servant's not greater than his master. And you're my servants, and I am your master. And so he says, if they, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's why Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake, for the sake of righteousness, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And by that, he doesn't mean that we earn our way into the kingdom through our suffering. That's not his point. His point is, if you, as you suffer and as you are persecuted, this is evidence that you are a part of the kingdom. As you stand for Christ. So that he says, woe to you if that doesn't happen to you. You're doing something wrong. You're running from the suffering. That is inherent in the Christian life. And so Paul is pointing that out to Timothy here. And he's saying, even as Timothy has seen Paul suffer in ministry, Timothy too will suffer in gospel ministry. And it's not just gospel ministers that will suffer. Paul says a little bit later in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And our natural inclination when suffering comes is to what? It's to run. It's to avoid it. And part of that's understandable because we weren't created for suffering, were we? There was no suffering in the garden before the fall. And so it's a natural inclination for us to run from suffering. But Paul is saying, share in it. Don't run from it. Don't avoid it. Don't hide it. Now, here's the question. Okay, then how are we to endure this suffering? How are we to endure it? Are we to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps? Dig really deep, man. Just tough it out. Grit it through. Through your own strength. Through your own stubbornness. No, that's not what Paul says at all, is he? What does he say? He says, share in suffering for the gospel, how? By the power of God. There's no way we could do this in our own strength. We would run every single time. And yet Paul says you can do this by the strength that God affords you in the grace that he gives you in the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, remember he's asking the Lord, deliver me from this thorn in the flesh, whatever it is. And the Lord responds to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, Paul says the only way that we can suffer with Christ and like Christ is by the grace of Christ empowering us to do so. And here's the thing. God has abundantly made provision for us by giving us that strength in the person and work of the Holy Spirit so that we can boast when we suffer for Christ, not in ourselves, but in the fact that he has sustained us and carried us so that his power and his might are put on display in our weakness because even in the weakness, by his grace, we were still faithful to stand for the gospel. Now, I want to apply this a, a couple of ways in closing. Again, Christian, I, I can't help but feel going back to this again. If you have run from suffering, which every single one of us have from one in one degree to another, 
avoided suffering for the gospel, for Christ. If you've done that, acknowledge this as sin. Repent of it. Thank God for the gift of repentance. And then look to Christ. Knowing your righteousness, your standing before God, doesn't rise and fall with how well you suffer or don't suffer. It's in Christ who perfectly suffered in your place. And then by God's grace, follow him in obedience no matter what the cost. No matter how much you may suffer from Christ. And how are you going to do that? By the power of God. And I also want to make this application to those of us who are gospel ministers in the room who are training the next generation of gospel ministers. This is how you train up the next generation. We're looking for men. Don't we need this desperately in the church? Men of backbone. Men of conviction. Men who will stand for the truth. Men who will endure and not cave to the whims of the culture. And at sometimes even those of us that they are leading. Men who will stand. So how do you raise up men like this? You don't berate them. You don't tell them again, dig deep. Be a man. Come on, you can do this in your own strength. No, that's not how you do it. You say the only way that you can do this is by the power of God. That's how you'll suffer for Christ. That's how you'll not fear man or his schemes. Is if you're filled by the Holy Spirit, empowered by God to endure. Because ultimately, what can men do to you? I love what John Calvin has to say about this in his commentary on 2 Timothy. He says, he who is armed with the power of God will not tremble at the noise raised by the world, but will reckon it honorable that wicked men mark them with disgrace. But the only way such men will be able to endure is not if they're looking to their own gifting ultimately, their own personality, their own strengths or weaknesses, but only to the power of God that strengthens them to carry out this high calling. And what about our missionaries? Can't help but think of our missionaries as we're going through this. The only way is they're suffering. They're voluntarily choosing to be in places where there is no church. That's why they're there. But that's a huge sacrifice for them. And there's many other sacrifices. And the only way that they can endure on the field amidst all the pain and loss and suffering is not in their own strength, but by the power of God. Guilt ultimately won't keep them there. Fear ultimately won't keep them there. What will keep them there is the good news of the gospel and the fact that God will keep them. That he will cause them to persevere, even when they can't see how that can possibly be the case. I am at the end of my rope. I have no more resources. How can the Lord possibly use someone as weak as me? It's because it doesn't depend on you. It's by the power of God. And he will keep you because it's through your faith, which is a gift from God himself, that you are shielded by God's power until the end, which is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. And lastly, just to address the church as a whole, I know this is hard for us. I think it's hard for us in part because we don't experience a whole lot of suffering. But brothers and sisters, we ought to rejoice in suffering for the gospel, in standing with faithful gospel ministers. I mean, Christ did. Didn't he rejoice in his suffering? Hebrews 12, verse 2, he endured the cross, despising its shame, for the joy set before him. And the apostles did. 
In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when they're brought before the religious leaders and they're beat and sent out and said, don't preach that gospel anymore, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And so should we. Because again, I don't think we often think about this, but it is a privilege for us to suffer. I mean, that's what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 29. And so this is true for us as well. He says, it has been granted to us on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Do we think of it that way? We've been given the privilege not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for him. It's been granted to us. Or listen to what Peter says, and and I'm going to mention this in closing. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. In other words, beloved of God, by God's power, may we not be ashamed of the gospel or of Christ's faithful gospel ministers, but rather may we proudly follow the Lamb wherever he leads, willing to suffer whatever the cost for him and his gospel, because we can do this by his power and because we love him, and ultimately, and most importantly, because he loves us. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is a heavy reality and a heavy truth. And yet we pray that you would make us such a people by your grace who are not ashamed of the gospel but are willing to suffer for it. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.